There, there's a difference. There's a difference between no resources being available and resources being withheld or denied. There's a difference between being alone and being ignored. There's a difference between a mirage in the desert, right? a hope of relief held beyond reality, beyond tangibility, and a fenced oasis surrounded by armed guards. Right? What is the difference? What is the difference? I don't know how many of you are fans or familiar with The Lord of the Rings, have seen the movies or read the books. Yeah. So the whole story is about a threat to Middle Earth, right? A dark lord who is a threat to Middle Earth and is laying everything to waste, destroying everything that is good, bringing death and destruction to the peoples of Middle Earth. And the story goes around these, uh, or all the peoples, but they're central to, to, to the story. There are these characters of the hobbits, right? Uh, which are these uh, dwarf-like creatures uh, that nobody gives much attention to. They live in their corner of the world until suddenly they're thrown into the thrust of everything that is going on. And I'm not going to tell you the whole story of the Lord of the Rings. But uh, there's one scene there's one point at the book in which two of these hobbit creatures, right, Merry and Pippin, get lost in a forest. And at this point, things are going really bad. These other creatures, the orcs, are wrecking havoc. They have, in fact, kidnapped Pippin and Merry, but they managed to get away and get lost in the forest. Uh, people are dying. Things are going from bad to worse, and it seems like hope is waning. Now, Pippin and Mary get lost in this forest and suddenly find themselves in the company of an ant called Tree Bird. And an ant is sort of like a tree-like person, right? It's a, it's a tree, is it a person? You're, it's, it's, you're not really sure. But what Pippin and Mary find out is that deep within this forest, there's a number of these ants, which are ancient and very powerful creatures. And Pippin and Mary try to convince this ant tree bird that the world needs their help. And starts arguing, listen, out there, outside of your forest, things are not going well. Sauron, this dark lord, is wrecking havoc. People are dying. A war is coming. You need to get in on it. And... He finds out that the ants actually know that this stuff has been going on, but that they have been very resistant to take part. And then you have a scene, or a, in a book or in a movie, in which Treebird gathers these ants, and they have a long, drawn discussion about if they're going to do anything about this or not. And Pippin and Mary are sitting on the edge of it, 
What's going to happen? And then Treebird comes out and says, sorry, guys. We're staying put. We, we have been here this far because we have held to ourselves. And we're not powerful enough to deal with what's coming. So we can't get involved. And then Treebird puts Marion Pippin on his shoulders, and there's this sad walk to the edge of the forest, in which Pippin and Mary have to deal with the fact that these powerful creatures are not going to step out of their forest. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. The answer is like a, like a punch to an empty stomach. Like salt on an open wound. She had come to ask for mercy. She had come to ask for mercy from the one whose mercy could, she knew could change everything. She had pleaded for relief for the suffering of her child and was met with a chorus of voices wanting to get rid of her and of her inconvenient suffering. And maybe it was naive of this woman to expect anything else. She knew how this group of people viewed her. She knew how they thought of her. And this place where they were meeting was not their land. It was not their people. These were not their problems. Why should they care? Why should he care? This is a story that is depressingly familiar. The problem, though, is that the answer, that answer, comes from the mouth of Jesus. What do we do with that? It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. We find this story in the Synoptic Gospels and Matthew, Mark, Luke. And today, I want to read it from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And you find it in chapter 15, when Matthew is telling the story, from verse 21. Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 15 from verse 21. And this is how the story goes. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. 
My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. What do we do with this story? We don't do ourselves any favors by ignoring or explaining away this text. It is a difficult and it is a problematic text. It is a story in which we see Jesus seeming to, at least at first, refrain from freeing a child from a terrible situation of oppression and suffering and refraining to do so on the basis of this girl's and her mother's ethnicity. Okay, that is problematic. So what do we do with a story like this? Well, we can do a lot of things. We can ignore it. That's also a choice. We can always ignore stuff that makes us uncomfortable. We love doing that. We're good at it. We can do that. That's not what we're going to do. One of the wise things to do whenever dealing not just with this story, but with any story that is set within a wider narrative and that comes to us through ages of translation and interpretation and across massive historical, geographical, and cultural differences, right? one of the wise things to do is to try our best to set the story in context, to set the story in context, to not just pull it out and forget where it comes from and where it's set. Which, when we're dealing with the Bible, means, of course, setting the text in context, right? Meaning that there is both a a historical and a cultural, but there's also a literary context to the story. And you hear me say this a lot over here because this is so important. We get these stories from the pen of the gospel writers who are choosing to tell the story in a certain way to get something across. They're, They're telling us, and if you look at the different gospels, they have different orders, right? So they, put, they choose which stories they will tell and when they will tell them for a reason. So there's a literary context. Now, doing this thoroughly is, of course, an extensive and quite arduous task that we don't have the time for here. But I want to give you glimpses from this exercise of setting the text in context and a few glimpses that might shed light on how we deal with this story. 
So first, just a few things. Tyre and Sidon, what is that all about? It doesn't, for most of us, it doesn't mean anything immediately, right? Uh, what that tells us is that this is Gentile territory. What is Gentile? Gentile is a short word for non-Jew, right? It means everybody that was not Jewish, every territory that was not Israelite. So this is Jesus and his disciples in Gentile territory, in a territory that is inhabited mostly by non-Jews and that is politically non-Jew, right? So that's important because this tells us where this is happening. Another important thing here is that the term Canaanite, Mark uses a different term, right? He says a Syrophoenician woman. It's more like a geographical. Matthew goes with Canaanite, which is a very odd term because Canaanite was not really a term in use in the first century. It's more of a historical term. You don't have in the first century people going around identifying themselves as Canaanite. That's something that belonged to some hundreds of years before. But it is a very powerful word in the Jewish narrative and how they understood themselves. Canaanites were a stereotype of the other that inhabited those lands, the pagan other, the other that served other gods, the other that they should not get mixed with, the other that had been violent to them when they come, the other with whom they had waged war. So when Matthew uses the word Canaanite, he's immediately tapping into a historically anchored prejudice between peoples. I'm just throwing things at you, okay? Another thing, however we might want to minimize the term dogs, and a lot of commentators will try to know, but it's, it's a diminutive, it's small, it's puppies, or it's... And all of that, like there's different ways in which you can do with the text. But however you want to do it, it's hard to oversee its derogatory potential. Okay, even a puppy is not a child. There's something going on there. Yet, there's other things going on as well. If we look at the wider narrative, this region, Tyre and Sidon, have, has come up in the Gospel of Matthew before. In chapter 11, Jesus mentions Tyre and Sidon by name, and he mentions them as examples of Gentile areas that would believe in contrast to unbelieving Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. In a context in which Jesus is being persecuted, dismissed in his own country, even though he is healing, even though he is speaking with power, even though he is freeing, he is being dismissed. And he tells Bethsaida, Chorazin, if these miracles, if these things had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would believe. Also, the literary context of this story is a context of Jesus challenging old approaches to the law for their hard-heartedness. If we pay attention to what Matthew is doing with where he puts his stories, chapter 15 opens with this very discussion prompted by the disciples not being kosher enough. So Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands before eating 
And the Pharisees are going, Jesus, what are your disciples doing? Why aren't they following the law? Why aren't they being kosher? Why aren't they being pure? And this, and from there, Jesus goes into a discussion about what is understood as pure and impure and speaks about that which being impure as being that that comes from within and not that which you eat. And he indeed challenges food laws, which were at the very center of Jewish spiritual practice. And then Jesus goes on to challenge these notions of defilement and purity, and then he brings this story. And after this story, Jesus goes for all, uh, into mass healings, into healing and freeing all the people that comes from him, and to the story in which he feeds 4,000 people with just a few bread and fish. And for all we know, all of these miracles and this feeding is happening where? In Gentile area. Mark, actually, when he tells the story, emphasizes that the region that Jesus goes to next is Gentile. He emphasizes it so much that he makes this weird route for Jesus that geographically doesn't make any sense. But that makes it very clear that Mark is saying, now Jesus is doing his miracles, his teachings, his healings in Gentile territory. In the, also in the previous discussion about purity and impurity, still in chapter 15, Jesus had spoke about what comes out of the mouth. Right? And he says it's not what comes into the mouth that makes you impure or pure, but it's what comes out of your mouth. And then Matthew brings us the story in which what comes out of the mouth of this woman, who is a Canaanite, who is regarded by the Jews as being per definition impure, and what comes out of her mouth is faith. Faith not seen in Israel, not seen in Capernaum, not seen in Chorazin. One more thing. The word choices of the narrative are interesting. Because they seem to imply that Jesus allows this situation to go on for a while. We don't, it goes very quickly for us, right? There's just a few phrases. But the, the language gives a notion that this woman is, is there for a while, and Jesus is silent. And not only that, but it also gives a notion that the disciples are urging him repeatedly. Right? That there's several times saying, Jesus, can you make this woman, she's, you know, it's getting annoying. Can you send her away? Can you send her away? Can you send her away? And Jesus doesn't answer. Some of this gets lost in translation, but a professor called Jay Boyce, I think he describes it well when he comments on this text, and he says, with dramatic effect, the story sets before us a Jesus flanked by two competing choruses. On the one side, one lone creature crying, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. God, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And on the other Boy says, a band of bullies shouting her down with, her, with, their, with their repetition, get rid of her. Get rid of her. That's what the Greek term implies. Get rid of her. Okay, with all of this contextual information, we could explore why Jesus might have reacted how he did. 
where we come back to the discomfort. And we explore why Jesus might have reacted the way he did. One of the challenges with, with the text is that, well, with the text and with our tradi- tradition of reading it, is it's hard to understand the tone of Jesus' voice, right? Could it be that Jesus was being playful? Could it be that Jesus was being ironic? We don't know. What's the tone of his voice when he speaks to this woman and when he speaks to his disciples? Could it be that he said this while rolling his eyes? (laughs) That changes the tone, doesn't it? We don't know. It's also interesting that the first answer that he gives, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, is directed not at the woman, but at the disciples, which sometimes we sometimes miss out on, something we sometimes miss out on. So could it be that this was Jesus' way of challenging their preconceptions? I mean, the disciples themselves had just been challenged in their purity because they weren't kosher enough, and Jesus had given them a speech about this and talked about this with them. So now he turns to them, you know, sets the issue at their table for them to do. Could it be that that's what he's doing? Could it be that that's why he's giving this answer and letting this roll for a while? Now, these are attempts of reconciling what we know about Jesus with what we see going on here, right? This seems out of touch. Could it be that Jesus was setting a situation to see if disciples had learned a lesson? We could take another approach. Another approach could be to consider that Jesus was simply acting within the cultural norms and prejudices of his culture and time. Right? Jesus, as a first century Israelite Jew, grew up in a context that viewed Canaanites in that way, and viewed their own place in the world in a certain way, and he was simply acting from there. For those theological bends that would emphasize Jesus' humanity, this would not be an unreasonable explanation, even though it would make others of us extremely uncomfortable, especially if we're on the other side of the theological bend, right? And we're like, no, this is, this is this, Jesus knows what he's doing, right? He doesn't just go with, with the stride. But here's what I find particularly powerful about this text. However, you may want to explain away or in, or however you may want to explain Jesus' answer to this woman. What does Jesus do next? What does Jesus do next? Flanked by the chorus of opposing voices, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, and get rid of her, get rid of her. She's not one of us. We have work to do. (laughs) Get rid of her. Kyrie eleison, flanked by this chorus of opposing voices, 
What does Jesus do? Jesus allows himself to be moved. This woman kneels before him, (laughs) takes him by his own words, and says, Jesus, these crumbs you're talking about, they're enough. You know (laughs) that it's enough. You know that you have plenty. And Jesus allows himself to be moved. However you might want to go around this phrase and this interpretation, the story tells us, the story presents us with a Jesus that goes beyond that border and crosses it. He not only frees the daughter, he commends the faith of the mother, and he goes on in Matthew's narrative to heal and free and miraculously feed a whole lot of other Gentiles. He doesn't just make an exception. There's a whole change in the direction of his ministry to include all of those of whom this woman is a representation. What do we do with the God that allows himself to be moved? As Treebird walks to the edge of the forest with Pippin and, and Mary on his shoulders. Right? He reaches the edge of the forest and sees the devastation with his own eyes. And then he shouts, this booming, echoing shout that rolls through the hills of the forests. And then the ants come and march out and get involved. And we could argue, right, that uh, it's because they saw the other falling trees because it hit home. But they marched beyond that. And as they do that, they know, they know what it costs. And they still have that question to deal with, which is, is our power, our strength, only enough to save ourselves? Or will we risk crossing our borders and believe that it's also there or possible to be a resource to others, to fight for others, to put our bodies at risk for others. It's a costly decision. It's a decision out, right? What do we do 
with a God who is moved. You see, whether we want to argue that Jesus was operating within this or that prerogatives, if we take the gospel narrative seriously, we have God made flesh with us, God present among us, going beyond a set border, a set division, breaking a set of otherness that was deeply rooted in their culture. We have a Jesus who allows himself to be moved by the plight of this woman, of her child, of their pain, who goes on with her argument of Jesus. You know, this isn't about... This isn't about having enough. This is about whom we will share it with. Whom is it for? And then it's for her, because he goes. The disciples go with him. So what do we do? Do we follow a God who is moved? Whatever we thought up to that point, do we follow a God who is moved? Or do we stand our ground in defense of a notion of what God should have done? I don't want to run away from this discomfort, right? Because discomfort is where the borders lie. Running away from discomfort means running away from the other. What do we do with the God that allows himself to be moved? And what does that mean when the question comes to our door, to our lives? to our prejudices, to the limits we set to who's in and to who's out, to who is worthy of our kindness, to who is worthy of whatever we have to give. What does that do to when we have to decide if what we have is just for us or is for others? And it's a difficult choice. It's, it's costly, right? It's costly. It's not... It's not about us figuring out if we have enough to, you know, give whatever is, 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 is uh, left over, you know? It's like, who's, the, who's at the table? Who are we sharing with? Who are we willing to... Are we willing to believe that the mercy of God that is for us, the grace of God that is for us, has to be, by definition, if it is good enough for us, good enough for whomever we meet? Do 
Do we dare to bring our, not only our, our minds, our hearts, but our, our bodies beyond those borders? What do we do with a God who is moved? And who is it? that we would rather silence because it bothers, because it's inconvenient. Who are those uh, crying Kyrie eleison? I don't think we should solve this. And maybe I wanted to end with that. Because our tendency is to find a new answer, a new system. I think we need to allow the discomfort to move us. I think we need to allow the questions to come fresh. I think we need to speak against ourselves. This is the kind of preaching where it's, uh, it's against us, right? It's against me. It's my, it's my own discomfort. It's, uh, it's the question that will keep coming. And that's why it's so important to remember and believe that the God who moved for us is a God that allows himself to be moved for others. Are we willing to go along? What does that look like? The answer of this woman is powerful, isn't it? Jesus. You know the crumbs are enough, and you know there's plenty. What do we do with that? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you, and that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord joyfully.